0: You're listening to Policy, Guns & Money, your fortnightly podcast on all things defence and strategy. We have a huge episode for you. Two grumpy strategists discuss Australia's fuel security, US missiles in the Indo-Pacific, and the revoking of the Port of Darwin lease.
1: If we don't sustain our supply of refined fuels, coals will worse and other supermarkets won't be able to be stopped. So there'll be ongoing cascading domestic impacts quite quickly
0: You'll also hear Akriti chat with Professor Harsh Pant about India's perceptions on the Indo-Pacific and the Quad as well as the foreign policy priorities under the new Modi government.
2: Grand strategy uh, seems to me uh, to be too grand a term uh, for these times that we live in.
0: And our roving reporter Brendan interviews Brian Adiba from the ENOUGH project.
3: Our funds that are designated for implementing the peace agreement Being diverted for other activities that are unrelated to the peace agreement.
0: But first up, I was lucky enough to grab a moment of Greg Moriarty, our Secretary of Defence's time, at ASPE's recent speed mentoring event. It was really interesting to hear what his key takeaways were from the event. Joining me now is Greg Moriarty, the Secretary for Department of Defence, who's just sat through 15 rounds of men- speed mentoring in five-minute blocks. But I was very curious, was there anything that you learnt or took away from this evening?
4: Uh, Renee, I was very impressed with the uh, the questions, the quality of the questions that uh, I had tonight from young people thinking very uh, creatively about national security, thinking about the changing international environment that Australia finds itself in, but also uh, interesting thoughts about the international environment, our domestic security circumstances and the changing nature of some of the threats that we face. And But also I was very impressed with the range of people from a whole range of Backgrounds, who've got uh, who are interested in a career in national security. Uh, some from coming from social sciences, some from hard sciences. Other other people at very early stages uh, thinking about entering the workforce for the first time. Uh, thinking about the the armed services, policy, intelligence, capability acquisition, project management. So a great bunch of people tonight to meet uh, to to see them. Uh, get some advice in the early stages of their careers.
0: Fantastic. Thanks for your time, Secretary.
4: My pleasure. It's great to be here.
0: I also caught up with Gabe Brotman, former Shadow Assistant Minister for Cybersecurity and Defence, who has been with our Speed Mentoring series from the beginning. What makes you keep coming back to these events?
5: i think that it's the opportunity to speak to so many people uh in one hit uh, i do a lot of mentoring and i love it uh, but it's one-on-one and it's you know usually between an hour and an hour and a half each session uh, whereas this uh, this speed mentoring and the, the whole i love the concept i loved it from the start when it would just be one-on-one mm. and people just move around like a bit like mm. what is it musical chairs yeah. <coughs> but uh, so i really love that concept but it's really grown now Mm -hmm. Uh, and we now have men. Mm -hmm. Uh, We didn't have men before and I just, I I love the fact that you can talk to so many people from so many different backgrounds uh, doing so many different things across the national security space and all looking for some answers to their questions in terms of how to advance their career and progress their career. So it's just really wonderful to meet all this talent that we have in Australia and particularly here in Canberra.
0: Yeah, I always leave the speed mentoring events feeling um, invigorated and, and really energized and, yeah. and ready for the next thing, and I've I found that with a few of our mentors as well, like they actually take quite a bit out of it. Um, but I was interested. Has there been any questions that have, that keep coming up that surprise you, or you're not
5: expecting as much? The thing, the question that, that always doesn't surprise me, but does keep coming up, is what is the career path to success? Mm. And there is no career path to success. And I encourage all the people who you know, I, I, I just talk with, to actually just be a bit lateral and creative in terms of the way you go about your career. Have fun. Mm. Uh, These people have got the most ex- some of the most extraordinary jobs in the country. They mm. are highly privileged, they're highly educated, they're highly privileged. They've got this great opportunity to shape our future. And I just, I don't get the sense that they kind of appreciate that because they're always looking for the next opportunity yeah. or yeah. they're constantly looking for the next opportunity. And they also think that it's kind of success is through this linear approach mm. to mm. your career. And anyone you talk to, I've been on many panels on people talking about the, with people talking about the uh, careers, And they all, we've all zigzagged our way around. Sometimes we've gone backwards, sometimes we've gone down another path. But we haven't, there has been no linear path from Mm. sort of APS6 to uh, el one yeah. and, and and then el two. Uh, I, I do say to people that I mentor personally, don't get fixated on having a particular position at a particular age uh, mm. in a particular branch. Mm. Yeah, the world is your oyster. There's so much across the public service to do in national security, mm. and it's become even more so since I was you know, direct, you know, well, since I was a public servant. So you know, take advantage of it. Have fun, mm. and especially if you're so focused on that
0: path as well it does become a problem when you're always at some point going to reach a no or yeah, something's going to go wrong or failure is going to happen and so if you're a bit more flexible and looking willing to look um, elsewhere that time is going
5: to be a bit easier as well Absolutely. It's because mm-hmm. uh, people also ask me about resilience. You know, mm-hmm. how do you cope with setbacks? Well, you cope with them by not being fixated on the fact that uh, uh, that I have to be at this particular level in this depicted particular department, in this particular branch by the time I'm 30. Uh, so, yeah, just to enjoy the ride a bit, mm-hmm. uh, then it doesn't make it, it... It allows you to take advantage of opportunities. And I th- that's what I really want to get through to these young people is that uh, there's, yeah, so many opportunities out there. Just mm. keep open-minded about it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for your time, Gay and thanks so much for coming back to another one. We'll I love s- them. see you
5: at the next one. And they're
0: my favourite things. <laughs>
5: Great. Really. Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: It's been a big week in Defence News, with both Prime Minister Scott Morrison and Defence Minister Linda Reynolds rejecting the idea of hosting US missiles in Australia following Osmin Talks. Other big news out of Osmin is that the government is trying to access US petroleum reserves as Australia only has around 21 days of diesel fuel. This week also saw the first federal MP to call for Australia to buy back control of Darwin's port, which the Northern Territory government signed a 99-year lease for the port with a Chinese company named Landbridge back in 2015. Here to take you through what all of this means is two of our grumpy strategists, Michael and Paul.
6: So Paul, from a risk and resilience point of view, what do you make of Angus Taylor's um, moves to ensure fuel security by changing the rules of accounting with the International Energy Agency and saying we'll access, Australia will access the US strategic energy reserve?
1: Well that's really going to do very little, Michael, and think in terms of the non-compliance situation Australia now faces with respect to that agreement of at least 90 days of fuel reserves, oil, crude oil and others. The country. And in fact, it's only one part of of an ongoing double headed program or problem, I should say, where Australia has that non compliance situation, but it also is at the end of very long supply chains in terms of refined fuel.
6: You're being very polite. By non compliance, you mean Australia doesn't have 90 days of energy reserves. In fact, we're way below. Don't we have somewhere? between 28 and 25 days petroleum and even less diesel stocks.
1: And even less in terms of aviation fuel. So yes, I'm being conservative, but we are probably at the close edge of a precipice in terms of being at at risk of global geopolitical stresses.
6: Now, this situation has been around for some time. It's been about eight years since the last energy assessment. So the governments have known about this problem. What does Minister Taylor propose to do
1: Well, the proposals currently, and I think it's a moving feast to some degree, is to dip into the American Strategic Reserve of Oil, part of a massive ticket arrangement, uh, similar to what we have currently with the Netherlands and other economies near to Australia, to uh, have an option to purchase or access some of those strategic reserves in those economies. So the problem still exists is that America is a long way away from Australia. Uh, It still has to get the oil on a ship, get it to Australia so Australia could do something with it. But once we get the crude oil here, what do we do? We don't necessarily have the ability to refine it into usable fuels because most of our refineries have shut down or at least moved away from deep capacities to refine operational fuel as in petroleum products, diesel, etc. And we have a very reduced refining capacity in the country.
6: Mm. So it seems to me that changing the accounting rules so that Australia looks compliant doesn't actually change how much fuel Australia would have during a time of crisis. So that to me looks like trying to game the International Energy Agency's system. And then accessing the US Reserve is not a solution either because you're saying, will they have the right kinds of refined uh, petroleum products that we need And also, will it be available in a crisis? In a 20 days, best case to get from the US West Coast, well, uh, we'd we'd be the limits of our uh, country stocks at that time. And that's assuming America wouldn't be having a crisis on its own supply at that time too. So I think you're saying this is not a solution on either level.
1: It's not a solution to the problems Australia faces. It's a solution to the government's dilemma of trying to coerce an international agency to change its rules to fit its political stance.
6: Mm. So to, to me, the big lesson out of this, I, I, I heard Minister Taylor speak a number of times about this was the most cost-effective way of solving the problem, but uh, I would say that it might be cost-effective, but it won't solve the problem.
1: Well, the term false economy comes to my mind in the sense that Australians have been sold the idea that uh, the government is trying to reduce and give the, the, least, the lowest cost for, for fuel at the Bowser. Unfortunately, the reality is is that uh, the market has been relied on, at least promoted, as being the best choice for delivering you know, just-in-time supply at the right price. Mm. Unfortunately, that is not necessarily uh, part of the real politic we have to deal with geopolitically. Mm. And the approach from the government is is probably multi-level, but there's a little bit of smoke and mirrors in terms of what they're trying to produce and
6: mm. offer to the Australian... Thank you. geostrategic trouble... Also this week, we've had OSMIN, the Australia-U.S. ministerial meeting, and at that, it seems that the Americans did actually ask Australia to contribute to security of oil tanker trade through the Straits of Hormuz because of, because of Iranian actions. Now, where does Australia's oil come from? Most of its crude oil
1: comes from the Middle East. Um, through the Straits of Through Hormuz. the Straits of Hormuz. So in terms of supply chain security and continuity of maritime supply, it does make some sense and some benefit to Australia to support that sort of action.
6: And then for refining, where does it go? So it comes down through the Straits of Hormuz. Singapore, predominantly.
1: But again, the ongoing cascading effects of some delay of the supply of the crude also impact our supplies that we get from, from Japan because Japan 90% of Japanese crude imports are from that part of the world. So it's going to be a cascading cumulative effect on Australia's access to refined fuel. Now that's in the face of the ability that Australia had some years ago to be almost independent for refinery because it had up to six uh, refineries in Australia all, all producing petroleum, diesel and, and aviation uh, related products. So We've come to the point where the best price at the bowser has been delivered by the market mm. and the the Australian industry uh, groups uh, advising the government have said that this is the best way to do the best price for the minimum cost. It's mm. it's, a, it's a better price deal to have imports. So we really seeing, seeing tension
6: between security and economics. Uh, total market approach has led us where we are, but we can already see security is. Probably going to result in the Australian government contributing to protecting tankers through the Straits of Hormuz.
1: I think it's um, I think it's something that is, is a logical thing that they will have to agree to. Mm. Uh, but they, you know, that is one step in a realistic, mature approach to the, the, the levels of the problem that we're dealing with.
6: And there's a wider regional security environment here too. Also, at that same meeting, uh, it seems like uh, Indo-Pacific security was a big topic and China's growing military power and its coercive use of that in places like the South China Sea, through which a lot of our refined petroleum products pass, that was really on the agenda. Now, uh, as I understand it, the US is thinking about putting more missiles into the Indo-Pacific, probably as the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty ends, they will be able to put different kinds of missiles in the region. Uh, The topic came up, about whether they would put them in Australia or not. Um, My thought about that is no, um, on two levels. One, on a very practical level, the missile ranges uh, would be at at their limits uh, if if they were based in Australia. But even more importantly, uh, putting US missiles into Australian territory provokes the immediate problem of who gets to press the launch button. You can have really tight uh, joint arrangements on intelligence, sharing information, but it's much harder to come up with a way of pushing that button that would meet both American political leadership demands and Australian political leadership demands. So I don't think that's a goer anytime soon. But it does say uh, security now is going to affect things that were previously just economic decisions. And we'll see that on fuel security uh, in the Gulf and in Australia and hopefully affecting Minister Taylor's uh, approach to this issue?
1: Well, Michael, I think the hopeful approach to the ministerial decision-making is a critical issue. If we don't sustain our supply of refined fuels, coals, Woolworths and other supermarkets won't be able to be restocked. So there'll be ongoing cascading domestic impacts quite quickly. In terms of the the missile placement, I don't even think the Americans realistically think Australia would allow them to put missiles in an operational ready in Australia. Um, again, the, the, the distance and time of issues of the missiles themselves, if they're medium, they're not going to fly too far. So there's that particular caveat as well. Mm. But I don't, really don't think the Americans realistically believe that Australia would accept them.
6: No, but all of these issues boil down to money, don't they? So uh, Angus Taylor was right. A paper-based solution to fuel security is the cheapest but unfortunately it won't work. So more money will have to be spent on storage and potentially refining capacity uh, here in Australia.
1: Well, I've been saying quite recently that there is a need to retool some of our existing refinery capacity, not necessarily to do the refining now, but to have an ability to scale up production should that be required. We see
6: that with water, don't we? Desalination plants for when there is a lack of supply. This is the same kind of logic coming to fuel. If you can't be confident about the market system operating, mm. you need an alternative because people will want to eat and uh, things need to be transported around.
1: Do we need to invest now for something that we might need in the future or do we need to skate to where the puck will be? Michael, there's been reports in the press uh, in the last week about suggestions to, that uh, the wharf in Darwin, uh, leased by Landbridge for 99 years, should be nationalised
6: Well, I think that port never should have been leased to a Chinese company for 99 years. Uh, So I think it's a growing recognition that that was a fundamental error. In fact, if that lease were to come up again for decision, I doubt that any Australian government could agree to it. I doubt the Northern Territory government would propose it again. And I would be very confident that any Commonwealth government that Uh, agreed to it would be publicly condemned. Now, what to do from here? Well, nationalisation is a big step, but uh, I think looking at the terms of the lease and seeing if it can be cancelled and the lease ended uh, wouldn't be a bad thing at all. Mm -hmm. But I, I think it's really a recognition of the change in understanding about national security as it relates to critical infrastructure in this country. And I think we'll see that with many more decisions. We saw it last year with Treasurer Frydenberg making an excellent decision not to give 100% ownership of Australia's East Coast gas distribution to Chinese entities. And I think, again, that decision was enabled by the very poor decision on the Darwin port. Some years ago, ports
1: uh, weren't at that stage of the the, when the lease was was let. They weren't adequately dealt with under the Foreign Investment Review Board rules. I understand.
6: No, I think it was a gap in the regulatory framework, and I think it allowed a whole lot of people uh, in various agencies and places uh, from Darwin through to Canberra to say, "Well, it was somebody else's problem." And when you're dealing with a national issue, somebody has to step up and say, "No, it's our problem, and we've got to sort it out." Now, luckily. Foreign Investment Review Board now has a much stronger national security element to it. In fact, the current chair, David Irvine, is a former head of ASIO. So uh, again, I think that's a product of that Darwin decision. But as we know from all these big investment decisions, there are active proponents that just want to follow the money. Uh, And having people say, well, there are big security issues is a problem for those kind of people. But the right decision is to take both, both things into account. So I think the good news is there's problem recognition. The bad news is these are really difficult decisions. Thank you for your time. It's been a pleasure to chat. And it always is with you, Paul. Thank you.
0: Our roving reporter, Brendan, recently interviewed Brian Adiba, who is the Deputy Director of Policy at the Enough Project, which supports peace to an end to mass atrocities in Africa's deadliest conflict zones.
7: Well Brian, can you just explain to us about the Enough Project, where it came from and what it's setting out to achieve and what its relevance is to South Sudan?
3: Well the Enough Project is um, an organisation that works to prevent genocide and mass atrocities across the world and we do that by focusing on uh, the nexus of corruption uh, and 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 conflict in uh, in countries in Eastern and Central Africa. What we're trying to advocate is that uh, there are vulnerabilities that uh, the leaders in these countries that we focus on in eastern and Central Africa. these vulnerabilities can be target can be used uh, to create impactful uh, policy to prevent war and mass atrocities.
7: And now you've worked with some former or current US Treasury officials haven't you? What have you learned from them and what's their role?
3: What we have learned is how uh, to get an understanding of uh, what's in the uh, policy toolkit, uh, what policies are there that can be utilized within the U.S. system um, to go after uh, egregious uh, human rights uh, abusers, uh, uh, people who abuse human rights uh, in in these countries that we work on. And, And so they bring that kind of understanding to us. Um, They also um, bring to the table uh, an understanding of the networks um, that we should uh, um, talk to, to to convince them to take action policy-wise. So um, who's who in government, who's who in that department or that department or in that country. Um, So that's the kind of knowledge that they bring to the table, which is very valuable, I would say.
7: So basically they're teaching you to chase the money, is that right? Yes, chasing the money is... um,
3: is, is, is an important um, aspect of what we do, which is basically, uh, we're saying that if you want to create consequences for um, for errant behavior by political actors in the countries that we work on, you have to find their uh, vulnerabilities, and their vulnerabilities uh, lie in the assets that they offshore, in the money that they take and uh, launder and get into the uh, global financial system. And so that's, that's uh, following the money is, is a key component of our work.
7: And could you explain a little more, maybe specifically in relation to a country like South Sudan, the nexus between, or the impact of the nexus between violence and corruption with oil revenue and that sort of thing, and and what's actually finding its way out of the country in hidden bank accounts, and what's what's left to find its way to the people?
3: So in South Sudan, um, you have a country where all systems of accountability have been stymied by uh, those that are in government. And therefore, the access to resources is uh, an important uh, component of what they do. And others, others in the political system, too, want access to those resources. Now, remember that because there are no systems of accountability, it's a free-for-all um, run and 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 so um this creates a contest for control or capture of the state by various elements within the political system in South Sudan and that's where the nexus of conflict and corruption really comes
7: in is south sudan potentially a reasonably wealthy or self-sufficient country with its oil revenue it's um it's a it's a rich
3: country that's blessed with oil resources with with revenue Um, uh, It has minerals, uh, it has rich agricultural land. That is not being utilized at this particular moment because uh, you have uh, the current prevailing political situation which is full of unrest and violence. It's a country that could sustain itself. It doesn't require any humanitarian assistance from the international community. However, because of the present circumstances of war, um, South Sudan is being fed. It's food insecure. Uh, More than um, three-quarters of its population um, does not have access to food.
7: Right. Now, there is a peace agreement. Is that going to work, and what's stopping it working?
3: Um, This agreement um, faces a lot of difficulties or challenges in getting it uh, uh, to to be fully implemented. And the reason behind that is because the status quo um, is not interested... And its powers being chipped or taken away by this agreement. This agreement, for instance, um, calls for a powering, power sharing deal. Uh, that is something that is anathema to elements within the rules, ruling system, um, because of this um, winner takes, takes it all mentality that prevails. This, uh, this 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 mentality within elements within the government. And so, um, even even when we have something on paper. The, the peace agreement um, calls for a profound reform of institutions of governance to arrest the corruption that is currently going on. And that calls uh, that that entails calling people to account. and the status quo elements within the status quo don't like that. And that is the reason why you see deliberate obstruction to the implementation of the peace agreement. We have seen uh, funds that are, designated for implementing the peace agreement being diverted for other activities that are unrelated to the peace agreement. For instance, renovating the houses of officials or buying expensive vehicles. And that's the the challenge we have right now with the peace agreement.
7: So they're going to be reluctant to let go of power. You're talking about the current government. That's correct. As the status quo. Yes. Now, in terms of chasing the money trail, have you found... Has any of this money found its way to Australia?
3: In one particular instance, uh, we were able to uncover assets that have been laundered here in terms of property and expensive vehicles. And Australian officials have been notified of that and they've taken action. And currently, um, this situation involves the, the seizing or uh, litigation involving a house that's worth a million dollars owned by a South Sudanese general. Um, whose salary um, is lower uh, and could not be expected to purchase a house that's $1 million in Australia.
7: Right. Do you know who in Australia is, is dealing with that? Which agency or department? The Australian Federal Police was
3: in charge of that, I think.
7: Right. And is that a, an ongoing investigation?
3: I think the case is still before the courts. Um, however, yes, it is. It, it's not... Uh, it's it's it's. You know, litigation is ongoing. It's something that we've unearthed and pointed out as an act uh, that merits introspection by Australian
7: authorities. Now, do you see the peace process actually bringing peace, or is there too much vested interest against that happening?
3: My own evaluation as a South Sudan analyst is that uh, the peace agreement falls far short of uh, bringing a comprehensive peace to the country. One... um, it retains the status quo, it's the same actors within uh, the armed opposition and within the government. And these people uh, have a history of antagonism, that's one. Two, the peace agreement calls for undoing um, the corruption that is currently ongoing and that is not something that is palatable to these actors. And, And so my own quarrel with the peace agreement is that it reinstates the same leadership that we have both within the armed opposition and in the government. And these people have a history of not working together. And it's inconceivable to expect that they will change their thinking in this current moment. And the evidence is is very uh, open to us right now uh, by the fact that the implementation of the agreement is dragging.
7: Are sanctions likely to to have an impact? Um, I believe sanctions uh,
3: can have an impact, but... Uh, The international community has to rethink the way it imposes sanctions on individuals. Previously you had uh, UN sanctions that are very ineffective because they target uh, mid-level commanders um, that have uh, no command and control responsibilities. Um, The sanctions are intermittent, far and between. They target individuals who have no connections to the global financial system. There is no follow-up, no implementation mechanism to, to ensure that the sanctions are followed. And so uh, sanctions have been sort of like a laughing stock among uh, the South Sudanese political actors who have been sanctioned. We've seen them moving around the region. Amsambargos um, don't also work. The international community needs to rethink how it imposes sanctions. What we at the ENAF Project are proposing is what we call network sanctions. By network sanctions, what we're saying is that you target individuals, um, entities that are associated with them, uh, people or individuals, relatives, friends, and foreigners who facilitate uh, the transaction of of these individuals, the transport of money from one country to another, the purchase of property in uh, neighboring countries what we've seen for instance in the Australian case, property bought in the name of relatives so that's that's a problem and and so the international community must target that so impose network sun- sanctions on a whole Range of people and actors. Network sanctions need to be complemented by strong anti-money laundering measures as well. And and when these are enacted, there needs to be high-level political engagement uh, to ensure that uh, the maximum impact of of sanctions is um, is attained. For instance, when we talk of sanctions too, we need to understand what why what, what we impose sanctions for. What's the end game? So there needs to be an end game spelled out. There needs to be a time frame, a mechanism for for ensuring that um, maximum dividends are attained. For instance, if someone wants to get off the sanctions list, what should they do? I mean, so those who impose sanctions must have an answer for that. Uh, with regard to South Sudan, sanctions should be targeted in a way to realize systemic change. It's not just about uh, making sure that the peace deal is, uh, is signed or adhered to. It should be about systemic change because if you don't have systemic change in, uh, in, the, in, in South Sudan, you're going to have a conflict in a, in a, in a few years'
7: time. And Just to finish off, uh, can you tell us a little about the role of China and Russia in South Sudan?
3: China is invested massively in the oil sector. It has a significant business footprint uh, in many sectors uh, within the country. Um, China's involvement, though, has been sort of uh, tacitly aloof. It's not too involved in what's happening politically with any of the actors. It's, it stays aloof. Um, at the Security Council, it's always voting on the side of the Sudanese, South Sudanese government. Compared to Russia, Russia is a relative newcomer to the South Sudan pol- uh, political and economic scene. It's bought about two oil concessions recently. Um, No work has started on those concessions, but what that means is that Russian involvement is going to get bigger as time goes by. And uh, there are anecdotal reports that are not proven that Russia is involved in shoring up the security system in South Sudan, but these are still allegations that merit uh, more introspection. But what that indicates in general is that um, it is increasing its um, presence in
7: South Sudan. And look, if the peace process collapses, do we see a return to violence?
3: Absolutely. When the peace agreement collapses, the chances uh, for violence are elevated significantly. And um, that is going to be detrimental. It will prompt uh, an exodus of more refugees from South Sudan, more displacement internally and that's going to be a burden for the region and for the international community because ultimately the responsibility of feeding and housing refugees falls on the international community.
7: That'll be renewed civil war. Yes, and
3: renewed civil war, of course, is another headache uh, that will require the participation and involvement of uh, regional actors and the international community to resolve it.
7: Thanks very much. Thank you.
0: Finally, Akriti spoke with Professor Harshpant, Professor Pant holds a joint appointment with the Department of Defence Studies and King's India Institute as Professor of International Relations.
8: Professor Pant, what, according to you, are the top five foreign policy challenges for the Narendra Modi government in his second term? And does India have a grand strategy?
2: Well, I I think grand strategy uh, seems to me... uh to be too grand a term uh, for these times that we live in. I think we are living, we are passing through a phase which is quite turbulent and uh, where greater flexibility perhaps is needed. My sense is that India has parts of its strategy in, uh, in place, but it is not articulated. So you don't, um, I think you can deduce from what India has been trying to do over the last decade, for example, mm. some of the key themes uh, for Indian foreign and security policy. But you would not get a paper, you would not get a clear uh, articulation of it. Uh, You would get it being articulated by various Indian leaders uh, at multiple fora, but you would not get it in one place. Mm. So I think in that sense, there's no uh, articulated grand strategy as far as India is concerned. But I think the elements of that are in place. But... uh, and I think this is related to your first question, mm. part of this question, which is what can perhaps uh, five, or four or five things that India, yeah. Indian foreign policy priorities would look like. I mean, I would put it as, as the biggest foreign policy priority would be internal transformation for India. Uh, remains uh, India's foremost priority. Uh, that unless India is able to transform itself internally, domestically, you know, in almost all spheres, politically, mm. uh, economically. Mm institutionally, uh, I think uh, all its foreign policy ambitions would fall by the wayside. And I think in that sense, Mr. Modi has done a good job of linking India's foreign policy more clearly than its predecessors with the domestic transformation that is needed. So that is, I think, number one, which may not seem like a foreign policy priority in in technical sense of the term, but it is Mm -hmm. in fundamental ways because you need your foreign policy to serve your domestic interests. But I think um, the other elements of that would be, uh, of course, managing China's rise. Sure. Uh, China is shaping the global order in ways that we had not imagined a few years back. And so how do you manage this powerful entity that is shaping various aspects of your engagement with the world? Mm -hmm. So every aspect of India's global engagement is now shaped by what China does or does not do. Sure. Uh, So that is very important. Third would be uh, India's neighborhood. Mm. And how do you... uh, make sure and make a case for India's leadership uh, in a period where many other powers are involved in India's neighborhood, where India's uh, neighborhood is also trying to engage with other parts of the world more substantively on economics, trade, security, infrastructure, connectivity, etc. Mm Uh, and I think uh, for India, therefore, to find its own place and voice in that uh, architecture is very important. The fourth element, which may seem far yeah. flung,
8: mm.
2: but are clearly important to you in terms of you know, whether you're talking of Africa, whether you're talking of Middle East, mm. from where a large part of your energies comes from. Or whether you whether you're looking at the larger Indo-Pacific, right. where You know, where it's sort of the new geography that is that is emerging, yeah. Uh, maritime geography that is emerging. How do you make sure that 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 continues to be, you know, in place, in sync with your larger aspirations? Sure. And finally, I would say that uh, look, uh, great power management is always important. Yeah. So while I talked of China separately, I think a large part of the of managing China is that what kind of partnerships you can build with other like-minded countries. Sure. Uh, America, of course, is such an important partner. Mm. Uh, But you have uh, emerging partners like Japan, like Australia, like Mm. European Union. Uh, How do you engage with them? And Russia, of course, how do you engage with them and carry forward uh, your uh, build new relationships, as well as uh, enhance these engagements that you have had in the past.
8: Absolutely. Um, And just on that note, while we're talking about great power competition. What do you think, um, is strategic autonomy still likely to be the default foreign policy mantra for New Delhi? Um, Or um, are we going to see a greater alignment with the U.S.? And is strategic autonomy going to be reshaped under Modi?
2: I think he has already indicated that in his first term, he has considerably shifted the goalpost on this. So uh, I don't think uh, non-alignment is something that is uh, now the the central framework around Mm -hmm. which, or the organizing principle around which Indian foreign policy uh, will evolve. Uh, I think he has almost reversed or or upturned some of these assumptions. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the argument that India should not be aligned is now being reconfigured as that India needs Mm -hmm. issue-based alignments, that India will partner with countries, uh, with all the countries that it feels are important on specific issue areas, Mm -hmm. and that India wants to play a role which is more than a balancing role in global politics. And if you want to play a leading power role in global politics, where you are shaping Mm. global order, then partnerships are essential. How can you get away with that fact? So I think uh, non-alignment, as I think was being practiced at least in the last two decades Mm. um, uh, in Indian foreign policy, which was... emerged but became more of a passive sure. policy response rather mm. than the Nehruvian response which was more proactive. Yep. I think it morphed into something very passive right? Uh, where constantly India was trying to balance competing interests. I think now with Modi, it is more about how do you uh, become a more proactive member of the global order mm. and how do you shape that global order to your advantage. That seems to me that it, this this would require important uh, relationships, important partnerships, mm. uh, which uh, India cannot get away with. Uh, so clearly, on the one hand, you have partnerships with countries like Japan, Australia, America, Europe, which look at the world through relatively similar mm. strategic prism. Mm. But you also have partnerships with, you know, interestingly with, with China and Russia, mm. which have, which in the age of Mr. Trump, yeah. look at the world on the economic side through similar prism. So you right. have, uh, you know, Chinese and Indians talking about how the global economic order yeah. from which they have benefited right. is coming under strain, mm. is coming under stress. And how can you shape that? Uh, yeah. How can you work, uh, coordinate your responses yep. to manage that transition?
8: Professor Panth, you mentioned the Indo-Pacific. In broad policy terms, what does India's embrace of the Indo-Pacific construct look like? We know about the new um, Indo-Pacific wing that has been created within the, within the Ministry of External Affairs. What sort of policy changes or uh, shifts could we expect?
2: I think Mr. Modi's speech at Shangri-La last year was one of the most um, clearest articulations, mm. I think, of India's mm-hmm. sense of what it what it means when it says the word Indo-Pacific. Yep. Uh, it is very expansive mm. in terms of geography. Uh, it, it is uh, slightly different from the Australian or the American conception of the maritime space. Uh, it is uh, also uh, and and like but like Australians, it also puts Southeast Asia at the core of mm. of its Indo-Pacific uh, yep. uh, outreach. And I think uh, from India's perspective, Indo-Pacific is is a maritime space which needs certain basic rules of the game, mm. if you will, to manage. Growing contestation that is that's seemingly happening in the region. So uh, my sense is that India would like partnerships with like-minded countries in the region to shape a favorable balance of power
8: right. in its favor. Yeah,
2: and that means that uh, you know inevitably you have America, France, Australia, Japan, mm. and Southeast Asia being mm. very very critical to India's uh, regional engagement. But I also think that it, it means that. India is now willing to think of a larger footprint mm. in the larger Indo-Pacific domain. Traditionally, Indian foreign policy has looked at the South Asia and Indian Ocean region at its, as its periphery. Mm. I think there is an ambition now to expand that definition. Mm. And one of the most clearest articulation perhaps is this uh, focus on BIMSTEC, the Bay of Bengal community, uh, which India is now focusing on. Which allows India to reimagine its strategic geography by incorporating countries like Myanmar and Thailand into, mm. its, into its immediate periphery, and which, which in a sense, links India seamlessly into East and Southeast Asia.
8: Right.
2: So once you do that, I think you are also uh, looking at your engagement with that part of the world through a different lens. Mm. And there has been also a, a lot of demand from from some of the smaller countries in the region. Yep for India to play a larger role. Some of it, India has uh, been able to deliver, but on most of them, India has found that its capacities don't allow it to do Mm. that. So I think by partnering with other countries, especially countries who have greater regional expertise, who who have greater institutional capability like Japan, Australia, America, it can do certain things uh, in terms of security and economics and trade and infrastructure, uh, which perhaps on its own, it won't be able to do. Yeah. So I think what we are looking at is these is this web of relationships yep. uh, that can manifest uh, themselves very differently. You know, some can be bilateral, trilateral, quadrilateral, <laughs> yeah. uh, which will allow I think India to have a greater presence in the yeah. Indo-Pacific and therefore bring bring the larger Pacific closer to the Indian Ocean. And of course, India sits at the very core of the Indo-Pacific architect.
8: I'm glad you mentioned quadrilateral. And as you can guess, sitting in Canberra, my next question has to be, what prospects do you see for the Quad? I know uh, countries want to keep it fairly low-key and unremarkable. But uh, from an Indian perspective, do you you sense a shift um, in attitudes perhaps when it comes to the Quad?
2: Yes. The story of Quad is very interesting, as you know. know, Mm. 2007 it almost died mm-hmm. 2017 it was resurrected yep. now that that itself tells you that you cannot wish away the structural realities for long yep. however uh, uh, difficult or, or uh, you know uh, problematic some people in australia and some even in new delhi would have found the idea of what in 2007 yeah uh, by 2017 it almost became impossible to get away from it yeah that this idea that you need certain kind of an institutional architecture, some kind of a platform in the region where... Mm like-minded countries can come together and discuss the regional environment is something that is now taken as a given in yeah. 2017. In 2007, it was all about, oh my God, this is going to, uh, how this is going to impact the Chinese, they are going to go all, all out and they are going to criticize us and, and so what do we do? Now it is, it is more normalized. Sure. It's a new normal, as they mm. say. And and I think the idea of, uh, of quadrilateral is interesting precisely because it shows that the underlying trends in the region are pushing Indo-Pacific regional powers in a direction that none of them visualized even a decade back. Right. So you are now looking at at a region where there is a more realistic appraisal of what individually these countries can do to maintain stability in the region. And I think there is a recognition that individually it's very difficult. Mm. Individually it's almost impossible even for the Americans mm. to manage a region which is passing through a phase of power transition. Yeah. And I think, given the, that reality, it is par for the cause for these countries then to give this idea of a Quad another go. Yeah. Now, as it has begun, clearly I think, and rightly, in my opinion, the focus has been on sort of what we call as softer issues. Mm-hmm. Issues which are about infrastructure, connectivity, trade. And how do you coordinate your actions right. uh, in terms of managing this transition? Because after all, Chinese uh, success has been that China has been able to meld competing geographies into something of a more cohesive whole. Mm-hmm. I mean, who would have thought that Eurasia or, or Indo-Pacific would be shaped by a uh, Chinese presence, you know, Chinese ar- arguments about BRI to, to this degree? Sure. So we are now looking at something where, where regional states are... Being forced to respond to that, yeah. and, and and they are responding in their own sm- small ways. And Quad, uh, in the in the initial steps that Quad has taken, tell us a certain story about the priorities of the Quad. Also, I think it is sensible because if we become too aggressive mm. with the Quad. Then it also generates a sense of unease yes. uh, in some of the smaller states, especially mm. in Southeast Asia, right. which do not want to be pulled into this choice of making decisions. That you don't, yep. have, you know, you you have America as an important partner. You have China as an important partner. But if you start looking at it more uh, competitively, Mm. then you force them into making these choices which they they don't want. And I think both for Australia and India and for other countries as well, Southeast Asia is critical in how the region's balance of power would emerge. So I think by focusing more on connectivity, trade uh, and economic aspects of mm. this engagement, we are possibly going to shape the regional environment but more effectively.
8: Right. I could sit here all day. It was fantastic talking to you, Professor Pam. Thank you for your time.
0: Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you, Akriti. That's all for this episode. Don't forget to leave us a review on iTunes as any feedback helps us out. You can also tweet us at aspie underscore org. And if you really like this episode, then tell another Defence and Strategy Wonk about it. We'll be back in two weeks.